Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, TSP's Evan Stewart talks with Lane Kenworthy, professor of sociology and political science at the University of Arizona. Lane studies causes and consequences of poverty, inequality, economic growth, and social policy in the United States. He recently published Social Democratic America, a look at the current state of inequality in the U.S. and what can be done to fix it. We touch on a number of hot policy issues and discuss the role of the sociologist in producing relevant research and writing for a public audience. Thanks for inviting me. So you're here at the Humphrey School um, talking about your new book, Social Democratic America, specifically talking about President Obama's health care reform um, policy. And your book paints a cautiously optimistic vision for the future of progressive social policy in America, um, but it's also critical of both the left and the right. So what could the left be doing better to sell these kinds of policy reforms? It's a very difficult challenge. Um, I'm optimistic in the long run, and I guess I would even say the intermediate run, but not at all in the short run. So my, my view about the historical evolution of social policy in the United States, at least over the last hundred years, is that um, there are lots and lots of proposals. Things do tend to move forward, but they do so very much in fits and starts with uh, bursts and lulls, and often at very unpredictable moments. So I don't, uh, just as an aside, although it's, um, it's uh, directly related, I don't think social scientists have a very good understanding of when and why social policy advances come in the United States. I think we have a pretty good story about why the degree of generosity of welfare states differs across the rich countries. It has a lot to do with unions and, and social democratic parties. But here in the United States, I don't think we have a very good story. Sometimes it happens when the economy is good, sometimes when it's bad, sometimes uh, unions are influential, sometimes social movements are, other times not so much. Most of the time it happens when Democrats are in charge or more or less in charge, but not always. There are exceptions there too. But what we do know if we take a long enough uh, perspective is that things have tended to move forward. And so I'm optimistic that that's likely to continue. The time horizon I refer to in the book is about 50 years or so. But having said that, uh, I think it is very difficult to imagine major advances coming in the next few years. We had a big one with the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and some stuff that came in the 2009 stimulus package. Um, There's a lot of opposition among Republicans these days. There's the Tea Party on the right wing of the Republican Party, which is exerting a lot of influence within the party and scaring a lot of the moderates. Um, There's uh, a view that's taken hold, really it started with Newt Gingrich in the early 1990s on the part of Republicans that when they're out of power, the smartest thing for them to do both political, politically and in policy terms is just to oppose everything that the Democrats want to do. Now, I think those things will go away eventually. I don't think the Tea Party will last, and I think the oppositional culture or political ideology will, um, uh, will lose some of its steam, but, but I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. But so back to your, your actual question, what do I think... Uh, Democrats or progressives could do. 
Um, my view is that the smartest thing, actually, is to keep looking at evidence, actually. Now, of course, I'm a social scientist, so I suppose I would say that. Um, but I actually think it's the, it, it really is the smartest thing to do. We've got a number of other rich democratic countries around the world. We have our own experience to look to. And so the more evidence we can uh, put on the table that suggests that public insurance programs and services and uh, other uh, other things in the area of social policy or social programs uh, work, that is to say that they have good effects and uh, those uh, positive uh, benefits outweigh the costs, outweigh the drawbacks. All of the, none of the programs are perfect. All of them have faults or limitations. Um, but in many instances, they work quite well. And so the more evidence um, we can pile on, and by the way, you know, evidence will sometimes show that particular programs don't work very well, and that's really, really important too. Um, in any event, I, I think in the long run, that really is the, the most effective thing to be doing. Of course, you know, there's plenty of role for, uh, for demonstrating, for organizing, for talking to your, uh, your representative and lots and lots of other things that may or may not affect short-run political debates and you know, voting for the, the right people and the right parties. Uh, but ultimately, I think uh, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about evidence tending to, well, not always, but tending to win out. So your work presents a lot of this evidence to knock down a lot of misconceptions about taxes, about big government, um, about economic competition. Um, why do you think many of these myths, though, seem to persist in our political discourse, even when we do put evidence on the table? Well, two reasons. Uh, one is that uh, evidence is seldom conclusive. There are always going to be studies which reach slightly different or very different conclusions. Some of those are done in good faith because they might be looking at different pieces of evidence. So I do a lot of research where I compare across the rich countries and over time, um, uh, so both levels and change over time among rich countries. But somebody else might be uh, doing an experiment and drawing inferences from what they see among individuals, or, uh, or they might be comparing across the American counties, or they might be looking at all of the countries in the world. I don't actually think that's a very smart thing to do if you want to draw conclusions about what works or doesn't work in a, in a rich country, um, but, but a number of people do this. And so it's quite possible that if we're talking about any particular policy or institution um, or an entire political economy, uh, that evidence won't be, um, won't be completely uh, conclusive. Um, the second and much more important reason is that there's always a constituency for, uh, for differing views. Um, there'll be some uh, who are in the middle and some on the right side of the political spectrum, some who are in different political parties who have fundamentally different beliefs, and they'll look around for any kind of argument or evidence that supports those beliefs. And so regardless of what the evidence really does say, you'll inevitably have it you'll inevitably have someone or some group, some organization, um, who's going to make a, a counter-argument. So in your recent interview with the New York Times, you said that tackling income inequality may not be the best route um, for social policy. Instead, we should implement policies that take care of the effects of income inequality, such as universal early education, um, rather than tackling inequality itself. Um, why do you think this notion of inequality has been so common in our public discourse as of late, as a sort of an argument of the left or a counter-argument of the right? 
Right. Well, here, and this actually ties in with the, the previous question about why particular views or conclusions or arguments persist. And that is that, um, so in addition to there almost always being some evidence that will support it, and second, there always being a constituency that will uh, try to offer particular arguments, often arguments are, are also plausible. So they're hypotheses. And so here's a, a, a great example or a useful uh, example, I think. Um, I think a lot of uh, Americans on the left, including many academics, have gotten interested in and excited by the many hypotheses that are floating around now that suggest that income inequality has harmful effects on other things that we care about. So there's always been an argument that high levels or rising uh, levels of income inequality are unfair for a variety of reasons. But uh, a lot of Democrats and progressives and liberals in the United States also have the perception that those arguments aren't very powerful in the sense that they don't sway all that many Americans, or at least not as many as they would like. And so these new arguments that suggest that income inequality is bad for health, for example, or bad for educational attainment, or bad for economic growth, or economic stability, or democracy, or trust, or happiness, uh, there are quite a number of these uh, of these hypotheses. Um, if true, I think a lot of folks see these as much more powerful arguments in favor of doing something to reduce income inequality. And you know, I should emphasize for listeners who may not be aware, uh, the United States has the, the highest level of income inequality among rich democracies in the world, and it's gone up a lot in the last several decades, really since the mid to late 1970s. So uh, a number of people see this as a worrisome problem, maybe on normative or ethical grounds, and now there are uh, new potential uh, points in, in the arsenal or arguments in the arsenal which suggest that not only is it unfair, but it has, um, it has bad effects on other things we care about. So that seems a lot more politically powerful. Now, almost all of these hypotheses are quite plausible. So, for example, there's a hypothesis that says income inequality is bad for economic growth, um, actually, there are a number of channels or pathways through which this could work, but the main one has to do with consumer demand. The, the idea is that the rich can, uh, can only spend uh, part of their, their very, very large or very, very high incomes, and so they tend to save and invest more. Middle class and poor households spend almost all of what they earn, usually by necessity, and economic growth requires uh, a stable and, and large amount uh, and growing amount of consumer demand. So less income inequality will lead to more consumer demand, and that'll, that'll be good for economic growth. Completely plausible. But interestingly, the, the opposite argument was made a generation ago by supply-siders and conservatives and Republicans who were suggesting that the United States would actually benefit from more income inequality, precisely because uh, this would lead to more savings and more investment, which they suggested was the, the principal deficit or failure of the American economy at the time. Both arguments are plausible because investment and demand are important for growth. Um, so we can't really resolve the argument uh, based on theory or logic. We have to look to the evidence. And uh, my conclusion from looking at the evidence here in the United States and in other rich democracies is that income inequality at existing levels and rates of change, I should say, over the last generation, seems to not have much, if any, effect on economic growth. I don't see any strong case to be made for the idea that income inequality is better for growth, or, or at least more inequality um, among the rich countries uh, these days. 
uh, or less inequality would be better for growth. But the fact that the hypotheses are very plausible, they seem very persuasive, will lead some people who either don't have the means uh, or simply aren't aware of the, of the studies to say, oh, yes, that's probably true. So back to I mean, the, the answer to the, the question is that the, the plausibility of these hypotheses keep them on the table. I think they're a big part of the reason why a lot of progressives have wanted to continue to believe this. Um, but when I, uh, so I'm, I'm in the process of writing um, a book on the consequences or effects of income inequality now, and when I look across the rich countries, uh, I find relatively little evidence that it, it does uh, have noticeably bad effects on a, a range of outcomes. The, the one where it does seem very clearly to have, uh, to have bad effects is middle-class income growth. And that's almost arithmetically true. If the rich, let's say the 1%, are getting a larger and larger share of the, the, the income growth that, that is produced by or uh, yielded by economic growth, then unless that's coming mainly at the expense of the near-rich or the poor, it's almost certain to come at the expense of the middle class. Now, there's some other ways in which you know, governments might shield the middle class from that, but, uh, but it's very, very likely to be the case, and it, it looks like it actually is the case when we compare across the rich countries. But for many of the other hypotheses, like eff effects on uh, health or college graduation, uh, I don't find much indication that income inequality, again, um, at the, the levels and rates of change in uh, the world's 20 or so rich uh, democratic nations since the late 1970s, uh, I don't find much indication that it has very bad effects. And so my, my suggestion uh, at the moment is that we might be better served in trying to solve problems or, or improve outcomes like life expectancy, college graduation, uh, equality of opportunity, equality of political influence, by trying to go at them directly through various types of public policies, instead of assuming that by reducing the 1% share of income or reducing the Gini coefficient, that it'll have very, uh, very good and very uh, large spillover effects on these other outcomes that we care about. This clearly has really important impacts for um, public policy and for political organizing and um, and for keeping this evidence in the public sphere. Do you have any thoughts on producing public scholarship or public sociology? Do you have any thoughts on writing for a public audience? And do you have any advice for academics who are looking to conduct their work in a similar way? Well, I've, I've always been very fond of, uh, of posing uh, research questions that not only have policy implications but are really big. So how can we reduce poverty? Um, um, are there trade-offs between uh, modest or low income inequality and other things that we might want, like high employment, rapid economic growth, and so on? Um, these are very hard questions to answer, but they're right at the core of uh, public policy debate for the world's rich countries. And so I, I think it's great for social scientists to try to answer them. Uh, that is to say, to pose the question and do the best we can with the evidence that's available and also figure out uh, other sources of evidence that maybe haven't been tapped or, or haven't been pursued. So I think that's one thing. Now, not everybody has to do that. There's loads of room, and there should be, and, and I very much embrace this for people working on, on uh, research questions that are not policy-related. So I don't want to suggest that it's necessarily better. It's, uh, it's just what I've been inclined to do. Um, 
guess the one other piece of advice that I'd mention uh, in case it's of use to anybody is that I found writing a blog to be really helpful. I started my own blog in 2008. If I were going to do it again, I, I'm not sure that I would do it by myself, although I've been very happy with, uh, with doing this for the last five years or so. Um, but I, I think you're likely to have more punch if you can team up with two or three or eight uh, other people. It also can be a lot more fun. Uh, but in any event, I think writing a blog is a terrific thing to do. First of all, because you can, because you can reach people. Second, because it lets you practice your writing, uh, and uh, and that can be a very helpful skill. And then if you want to go on and write things for other media outlets, whether that means op-eds or short pieces in kind of popular or quasi-popular outlets, um, it may also have the beneficial effect of making your academic writing uh, a little more reader-friendly, which I, I think would be great for lots and lots of, of <laughs> academics. Um, uh, in addition, you can write and get the thing out there right away, so you don't have to wait uh, two weeks or six months or 18 months for what it is that you've been writing to, to actually enter the public sphere. So there are lots and lots of, of benefits to doing this, and that's my, at least in my own experience, I guess my sort of first and foremost recommendation for young scholars who would like to do this. Uh, also, I, you know, the startup costs are very low, the time cost is very low, you can, you can put stuff out when you want and not worry about deadlines, um, especially if you're able to team up with a few other people so that there's a sort of semi-steady stream of, of output which keeps people coming back to, to your site. That also takes the pressure off you to, to write things. I, I very much think that now, I mean, we live in this glorious age where there's so much information and so much writing. It's, it's just light years away from uh, the way things were when I was in graduate school. That's wonderful, but in some respects, there's also too much written, too much information. And so um, here, too, another example or another benefit, I should say, of teaming up with other people is that you'll feel less impelled or constrained to write even when you don't really want to write, even when you don't really have something valuable to say. Um, and, and I think uh, our, our public sphere now would be even better if people would hold back slightly <laughs> and uh, write when they really have something that, uh, that's valuable to contribute uh, instead of just uh, writing because they, or, or you know, going on TV or on the radio or wh whatever your outlet is. Uh, simply because you have to, because we have to keep up this sort of steady stream of, uh, of information. But in any event, I, I think there are loads and loads of benefits to, to having a blog and very, very little in the way of cost. So it's a, it's a terrific thing to do. Of all the evidence you've considered as of late in either the books you've written or the books you're writing, what do you think is sort of the most important factoid or piece of information that... Um, our public sphere could really benefit from knowing right now. Um, the policy world in America could really be benefit from knowing, um, but people aren't really talking about. I'll, I'll mention two things, and they're related. So one is the one of the main conclusions of a book that I published a few years ago, actually called "Progress for the Poor," where the the overarching question I actually tried to answer a number of different questions in the chapters in the book, but the overarching question is. Um, um, how can we best ensure income growth for low-income households in the world's rich uh, democracies? And the, the main conclusion I drew there is that if we look at really existing rich democratic nations over the last generation or so, so roughly since the last 1970s, in countries where incomes for the bottom 10 percent 
and subsequently I, it, I extended this and it turns out the same thing is true for the bottom 20%, even the bottom 25%. Where incomes have grown, it's almost entirely because government transfers have increased. There are a few exceptions to this, like in Ireland and Norway, but those are very idiosyncratic cases. Ireland had this economic miracle for about 15 years where the country just grew like crazy. Norway has a lot of oil wealth, and so it's had a booming economy for a long period of time. The Netherlands is another partial exception, but that too is an idiosyncratic case. Apart from these exceptions, uh, it's almost always true that where incomes have gone up, it's because government transfers have increased and not because earnings have increased. It's not because more people have entered the labor force. It's not because wages have risen. Instead, it's simply because uh, policymakers have either created policies that where the benefits automatically rise as the economy grows, or they make conscious policy decisions that as, as the economy has gotten richer over time, maybe we should make various types of benefits. And again, uh, uh, it could be different types of benefits too. It's pensions, it's unemployment insurance, it's what we often refer to as welfare or social assistance, or an employment conditional earnings subsidy like the Earned Income Tax Credit. But, but I don't think very many people understand that as much as we like it to be the case that employment, whether in the form of more work hours, more jobs, or rising wages, can be a major source of rising incomes for the poor, it tends not to be the case in, uh, in most rich countries nowadays. Now, I don't know that that's going to go on forever, but I think it's a really important policy lesson. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention, which is more widely known, but I, I think not sufficiently talked about, is that as optimistic as I am about um, improvements in well-being and advances in social policy, even in a country like the United States, where the politics are kind of stacked against it, or at least make it more difficult than in other rich democracies. Um, so as optimistic as I am about that, I'm very pessimistic about wage increases. Um, in the United States, and to some degree in other rich countries too, we've now had a very long period of wage stagnation, not just for the poor or the working class, but really for a large part of the middle class too. So even at the median, the wages in the United States, well, even before the economic crisis in 2008, they were only barely above what they had been all the way back in the late 1970s. So the, the, the only reason that household incomes have uh, gone up for the middle class is because we have more two-earner households now than, than we did a generation ago. And that's happened, I think, largely for other reasons. I, I don't think it's the case that more and more women have been moving into jobs solely to compensate for wage stagnation. It's a function of changing norms and more education and more opportunity in the labor market. So that's all, all good for the most part. Um, but this is a really, really fundamental problem, and I don't see any reason to expect that it's going to change going forward. That is to say, all of the causes, and there are multiple, from globalization to changes in corporate governance, the fact that shareholders now demand uh, really high quarterly profits rather than just sort of slow, steady improvement uh, uh, in companies, technological change, union decline, um, growing immigration of, uh, of uh, uh, less skilled employees, and a variety of other factors. All of these are very likely to continue, which suggests to me that um, we've now had 35, roughly uh, three and a half decades, 35 years of wage stagnation. I don't see that changing. And so I think we as a country, and again, I, I think to an extent this is going to apply to other countries too where unions have been in decline and most of the same economic and social forces uh, or pressures have been mounting as well. 
I think we need to begin to have a very serious conversation about how we're going to make sure that incomes, not just for the poor, but even for the broad middle class, are going to grow as the economy grows going forward. And simply saying, well, you know, if we could just make unions stronger or maybe impose a few trade barriers on China or maybe slow down immigration um, or something like this, that that's going to do the trick, I, I think is probably wrong because any single one of these, these are only partial contributors to the the larger problem. And so um, my best guess is that in the long run, we're probably here too going to have to turn to a public policy solution, whether that's some form of expansion of the earned income tax credit well up into the middle class and tying it to growth of the economy, maybe tying it to GDP per capita. Right now, the earned income tax credit is indexed to... um, to the rate of inflation. So it goes up automatically every year, unlike most of our other social programs. And that's a good thing, but it's not good enough because over the long run, the economy grows much faster than the rate of inflation. That's real economic growth. And we like to see uh, incomes of middle-class households more or less keep pace with uh, the economy or at least grow over time. They've only grown in the last generation because we've been adding more and more employees. And that, that, for the most part, I think is a very good thing. But eventually there's a ceiling. Eventually we get to a point where every two adult household has both of those adults in the labor force uh, already and every one adult, almost all one adult households has that person in the labor force. Um, so I, I, I think that's a, a conversation that we're going to need to have at the, at the policy level that for the most part we're not having at all, either on the left or the right, I should say. Well, great. Well, Professor Kenworthy, thank you for talking with us today. Very welcome. <laughs>